Good afternoon. Um, this is Hooting Yard on the air. I hate to disappoint you, but I'm exactly the same Frank Key who you, if you were listening a quarter of an hour ago, would have heard talking about Bob Drake um, on that exciting show we've just heard. Anyway, this week, as usual, I'm going to um, read you some prose for half an hour. Um, the first piece I'm going to read this week is called The Brink of Cramp. And for those of you interested in such um, things, this um, story was first published many years ago in an edition of eight copies. Um, they were, each of the copies was in a ring binder. It was handwritten, and um, it's an alphabetical story, and each of the letters was hand-illuminated in watercolour. Just think, if you've got a copy of that, it could be worth, ooh, ooh, 25p by now. Anyway, this is um, The Brink of Cramp, an alphabetical guide to Aubin Linseed's great novel. A is for ants, which are small social insects of the Hymenopterus order. Chapter XXVI of Linseed's great novel is an extended celebration of the life cycle of the ant. Unfortunately, Linseed's understanding of the natural world was one of profound ignorance, and his magnificent list of ant facts is almost entirely inaccurate. For example, the author would have us believe that, quote, Ants have seven hearts, three brains, and bear upon their indented backs a puddle of milk, unquote, and that, quote, the Chisatlantic ant is spawned from mud and collapses in on itself into a dry husk after living for 80 years, unquote. That said, the so-called ant chapter can be seen as pivotal in the course of the novel. B is for Bosket. Linseed places many of the important scenes of the book in a bosquet or thicket of stunted and dying shrubs. Its precise location is given a map on page 66, which the author commissioned from a professional cartographer named Dennis Snop. Snop, who died on Easter Sunday 1955, is one of the more preposterous figures on the fringes of Linseed's circle. His bath was made of wood. He suffered dreadfully from nosebleeds. His hair was like straw, and he could not play the ukulele, try as he might. Despite his many disadvantages and his diminutive stature, he's noted for having felled a U-boat captain with a single blow from his cambric-gloved fist. C is for cake. Wouldn't it just be for cake? It is one of the more intriguing features of this great encyclopedic novel that nowhere in it does Linseed mention cake. And yet we have evidence aplenty that the great author was a fanatical cake-eater, often guzzling five or six chocolate Swiss rolls for breakfast. Critics have puzzled over the resounding absence of cake in the novel. Tharbin sees in it a sunk retinue, although what she means by this is unclear. D is for deduction. Linseed was an avid reader of crime fiction, and in part seven of the novel he essayed his only attempt at creating a super sleuth along the lines of the great fictional detectives. It has to be said that he failed. His detective, whose name escapes me, is woefully lacking in the qualities we expect to find in such characters. 
Most striking is the detective's inability to make the most elementary deductions. Faced with a murder victim who has been impaled on tungsten railings, pages 481 to 483, Lindsay's sleuth concludes that the man is, one, not dead, two, an employee of the post office, and three, rubbery. The brink of cramp continued. E is for electroencephalogram, that is, a record made of electric currents in the brain. Linseed makes use of electroencephalograms, or EEGs, in a number of novel ways in this tremendous book. Having stolen a cache of EEGs from his local hospital, Linseed used them to plan the peaks and troughs of plot development in parts 4 to 8. On occasion, this has wonderfully inventive consequences, as in chapter LXXV, where he is forced to kill off Mopper, only to resurrect him 60 pages later. Linseed was eventually prosecuted for the theft of the EEGs and was banged up in stir, as he put it, for three nightmarish weeks. F is for flamboyance, with which the novel is fairly riddled. I'm particularly fond of Linseed's predilection for having many of his characters plunged into situations of utmost peril from which they're extricated not by their own efforts but by the author's cavalier manner of ignoring or denying the existence of earlier scenes. On page 72, for example, Wicket loses his footing on a cliff edge and is actually falling in mid-air as the chapter ends. On page 178, however, he is to be found sitting in an armchair at the rectory, swigging from a flask of gin, and no reference is ever made to his earlier calamity. Ah, such élan. G is not for cake, C is. H is for hack. Mungo Hack is arguably the key character in the book. One hesitates to dub him a hero, although Linseed himself used the word in his notebooks. It is Hack who, at the beginning of the novel, falls out of a boat and bangs his jaw on an oar. Hack who delivers the mustard to Wensleydale. Hack, indeed, who, in chapter XXI, is described as entirely festooned with blankets, rugs, swaddling and netting. Linseed planned to write another novel in which Hack would join the Mounties, but a gunshot wound and trellis work put paid to that scheme, as we know. I is for ink. Linseed wrote the first draft of his novel using black rotring ink, technically known as drawing ink for tracing paper and line board, zeichentouche vor zeichenpapier, encre de chine pour papier de dessin, or Tintacina para papales de dibujo. He was assured that it was waterproof, but to my knowledge, never tested this by lashing the pages to the top of his umbrella during a downpour. J is for jumpers. 
When not writing, reading, loosening thalls or hacking at pieces of wood, Linseed relaxed by knitting. His sister has estimated that the renowned author probably produced something in the region of 10,000 items of knitwear during his lifetime. Adept at balaclavas, muffs and shawls, he could never crack the technique of knitting jumpers. His many delirious attempts, which he insisted on wearing at public gatherings, are the best evidence of his inability. All his jumpers were either too big or too small, had three or more sleeves, no hole at the neck or gaping holes in unlikely places. Linseed scholar Gravel Slobber has recently published an entertaining picture book containing full-colour photographs of over 100 examples. brink of cramp continued still. K is for cataplat, a disease caused by prolonged exposure to muck. Although he had no personal experience of this malady, Linseed makes it a recurrent motif in his novel. Indeed, as Hummingbird has pointed out, it's worth noting that more people suffer from cataplat in Linseed's novel than in any comparable work of fiction. This has been contested by Tharbin, who points to a work by Perkins at the, at the denouement of which all the inhabitants of a massive city are struck down by cataplat, thus bringing the pock to an apocalyptic, if somewhat overwritten, close. L is for lemonade. In chapter CLXVIII, Halbag enters the butcher's shop clutching a bottle of lemonade from which he takes regular swigs. The butcher accidentally brushes against him, knocking the bottle to the floor, dashing it to smithereens. A puddle of lemonade forms on the tiled floor, spreading in rivulets along the grouting. Halbag sobs and does not buy any sausages for the picnic as planned. The ramifications of this seemingly innocuous incident are many and untoward. It is one of the few scenes in the novel which is purely autobiographical. M is for Mopper. A number of critics have pointed out that the character of the winsome sniper, Mopper, is based on Linseed's friend and confidant, Hinges O'Shaughnessy. His poetry is little read today, although during his thirties O'Shaughnessy was lionised by bespectacled terrorists. The major themes of his poetry are hopelessness, enmity, bath salts, panelling, crustacea, morbidity and brown spiny flakes of unknown provenance. He lived in a lighthouse and burned most of his manuscripts. N is for nothing at all in the book. O is for Autolan, or bunting, a bird of some description. Linseed, who knew absolutely nothing about ornithology, was a great one for bunting of a different sort. The little flags and pennants hung decoratively at galas, fairs and garden parties. He was known to strew such bunting wherever he went. On page 981, Minnie opens a bunting shop, 
but how this enterprise fares, we never learn. <coughs> Excuse me. P is for plot. For decades I've tussled with the near insurmountable task of summarising the plot of this awesome novel. Such a summary would be a boon to students throughout the globe. I'm pleased to announce that my first draft is now complete. However, so intricate are the weaves and strands of Linseed's masterpiece that my summary is in fact longer than the novel itself. I have now set to work on a precy of my summary, which I hope to have ready for publication within the next 40 years. Q is for Quassia, an American tropical tree which yields a bitter tonic. Linseed goes out of his way to inform us that there are many Quassias in the Bosket, and it is not hard to see the reason for his insistence. It's not hard, but try as they might, none of the legion of critics and exegesists of the novel has managed to come up with a convincing answer, and nor have I. Perhaps Flake comes closest in the interminable footnote on pages 64 to 81 of his study, where he points out that Linseed mistook Quassia for Elf Bolt. Although an elf bolt is a flint arrowhead, and quite unlike a tree, Flake argues his case with precision and vivacity. R is for requiescat, a prayer for the repose of the dead. At Linseed's funeral, the requiescat was read by his cat. Few cats in history have been gifted with human speech, and Linseed's was no exception. Its woebegone mules were later translated by the notorious fraud Togglebath, who came to a bad end when he was set upon by a pack of ferocious geese while strolling along the towpath of a canal. S is for scootage, a tax paid by a feudal tenant in lieu of military service. One of Linseed's more endearing habits was his annual payment of scootage to a snag-toothed widow who lived in a seaside resort the author had visited when he was a tiny tot. It was a very windy resort. The widow could never understand Linseed's motives for conscientiously paying an anachronistic tax to someone who was in no position to press him into military service. Neither can I. The Brink of Cramp, the final part. T is for 347, which is the number of chapters in Linseed's timeless masterpiece. Careful study of his notebooks shows that the author originally planned just eight chapters, but that he got carried away following the Windigo pudding incident in chapter six. Sorry, chapter VI. Peruvian editions of the novel give 346 chapters, running together chapters CXLI and CXLII. The same editions have the added quirk of altering the names of all the characters, except Mopper, 
and inserting implausible strings of adjectives before many of the nouns, even where Linseed has already supplied his own. <coughs> Excuse me. You is for Yumiak, a large Eskimo canoe. It is not generally known that Linseed wrote much of the novel while squatting in an umiak which he had had built inside his house. He had planned, on completion of his work, to knock down his home and tow the umiak to a canal. Further than this, his thoughts did not go. As it was, however, the umiak perished in a conflagration which laid waste Linseed's house in September 1956 his final draft, having been carved on fireproof boards, survived the flames, for which the world of literature must surely rejoice. V is for vagabonds. There are a number of vagabonds, ruffians, miscreants and urchins in the novel, none more memorable than the unnamed character who first appears in chapter XI, picking his teeth and rummaging about in Wensleydale's haversack. Later, in chapter XCVI, we find him drenched by bilge water, picking his teeth and rummaging in Hack's rucksack. His last appearance is in chapter CCXVII, where Rosemary is astonished to find him playing the cornet in an amateur dance band, picking his teeth and later rummaging in Ringmold's satchel. W is for wax, a solid, insoluble, non-greasy substance which softens and melts at low temperature. On page 1496, Glubbage drops a small waxen lozenge into a titanium cylinder which she then wraps in cellophane paper and conceals behind the horse trough. The cylinder remains maddeningly undiscovered for the remainder of this majestic novel. X is for Zeister, a surgical instrument for scraping bones. At the same time as he stole the electroencephalograms from the hospital, Linseed also made off with a crate of newly sterilised Zeisters. It is not known to what use he put them. Interestingly enough, there is no mention of Zeisters in the novel. Linseed provides a description of the bone structure of each of his main characters, going to in, into inordinate detail on each part of the skeleton. It is assumed that he appropriated this information from a volume of poetry by Hinges O'Shaughnessy entitled The Insanitary Pew. Why is for you, the listener, as soon as you've finished listening to this alphabetical guide, soon, soon, please put your library ticket in your pocket and hurry along to your library, swinging your arms and smiling beatifically, and once through those massive oak doors, borrow Linseed's novel, take it home and read it from cover to cover, and then read it again and then again until you can recite it from memory. Z is for Zombie, the Python God, to which Linseed paid obeisance throughout his life.
So that was The Brink of Cramp. And um, here's an old favourite. I do like to throw in some old favourites from time to time, apart from anything else. Um, it means I don't always have to come up with half an hour of brand new material every week. Um, this is called Massacre of the Innocents at Hoon. Splattered with seagull droppings, the woman of twigs stood at the very edge of the cliff, her back to the sea. Barefoot, she rocked gently back and forth on her impromptu podium. The villagers were gathered about her, wretched and snivelling. Some carried pitchforks or dainty little tin boxes full of bip. They were all ears as they waited for the woman of twigs to speak. She had blindfolded herself with a threadbare bandage, bound her hair into tufts with yarn and roots, and held in her hands a ribbon of bloody silk. Precisely at the moment that the thousandth wave of the day crashed against the rocks below, the woman of twigs ceased her rocking, cast the ribbon to the winds, and, shouting to make herself heard over the screeching gulls, began. <coughs> You asked me to save the village from doom. I have communed with a variety of weird and tiresome shades to seek guidance. You are correct. Your village is imperiled. There is only one way to rescue it from the coming agony. Three of your number must travel many miles distant to the town of Hoon. There they must find a churn possibly broken, the churn of Hoon, which has had engraved upon it a rather fetching likeness of myself. Do not ask why. Having scoured Hoon for this churn, and found in Hoon this churn of Hoon, it must be brought back here with due haste, and hurled into the boiling sea from this very spot on the cliff's edge. That task complete, your village will once again know glee. I have left unmentioned one crucial point. The three who will venture to Hoon, there to find and return the Hoon churn, must all be called Ned. That is all. Work began at once on building the chariot. In the kitchens, the villagers boiled up huge iron pans full of mud and silt dredged from the riverbed. Trees were felled in the spinney, the smithy at his anvil beat out a goodly number of nails, spikes and very sharp hooks. Within a week, the foul-smelling but indestructible vehicle was ready. Volunteers fanned out across the countryside to trap a suitable beast of burden. Horses, oxen, even a crippled reindeer of great elegance were sighted and stalked, but another week elapsed without success. Eventually, it was decided that the three Neds would have to travel under their own steam, pulling the chariot by themselves. Ned, Ned and Ned agreed, drooling with excitement in their eagerness to set out on so glorious a journey, one that would save the village and bring them renown. They left the village at a gallop in the middle of the night. Without maps, they relied entirely on local law and superstition. From infancy, each Ned had been imbued with a long catechism of saws and proverbs. Now, each had engraved upon his skull a different couplet, 
handed down through the generations. If you wish to go to Hoon, spit three times and follow the moon. Hoon's beyond yon crumpled hedge, hemmed around by gorse and sedge. When you see eight pebbles strewn, your eight days and nights from Hoon. They travelled without pause, two dragging the stinking chariot while the third lay bundled in it, sleeping or feeding from a polythene bag full of curdled slops. At first they followed the course of the great frightening river, until suddenly it wormed its way underground. For eighteen months they travelled through a desolate landscape, flat, grey and curiously redolent of sherd. But as they entered Hoon's hinterland, things changed. In rapid succession, they passed an asbestos works, a barrel of rainwater, a customs post, damp hectares, elk encampments, fence posts, grotesque wooden carvings, horrifying shrubbery, improbable water tables, jerry-built huts, a kaolin quarry, lumps of disgust, monstrous gulches, nebulous stretches of pointed brambly things, ornithologists' hideaways, parakeet enclosures, quarantine sheds, rusk markets, strange gobbets of sludge, a tremendous farmyard, urn burials, a vacuum, wrestling pythons, extravagant banks of yellow fog, yeast traffickers and a zither-crushing factory. Ned said to Ned and Ned, Soon we shall be in Hoon. I can feel it in my water. He was not mistaken. The great south gate of Hoon was over a thousand years old and completely overgrown by clumps of hideous fleshy foliage oozing poisonous sap. All attempts to destroy this abominable vegetation had met with failure and it had not been possible to open the gate for at least two centuries. Rather than blasting a hole in the town wall, a ramshackle lift contraption was knocked up close by. Two wooden platforms, one either, si one either side of the great wall, were raised and lowered by an exciting system of pistons, pulleys and winches operated by a team of gatekeepers wearing boa constrictor masks. In return for their labours, they exacted a hefty price. Unfortunately, the three Neds were utterly penniless. Muttering among themselves, our heroic trio decided to proffer gifts in lieu of payment. Ned offered the gatekeepers his cap, which was made of rusted whisks. Ned presented them with a sick toad he had been pampering for the past month. Ned gave them a handful of silt scraped from the underside of the chariot. Well pleased with these gifts, the gatekeepers allowed the exhausted threesome to clamber onto the platform. 
Two days later, the three Neds were lowered to the ground on the other side of the wall. At last they were in Hoon. Finding the possibly broken churn of Hoon could only be a matter of time. They would be implacable, ferreting into every corner of the ancient town. As soon as they disembarked from the wooden platform, they were set upon by a whirling tangle of ruffians who bashed them senseless, stole the shirts off their backs, emptied their polythene bags of slops and pap into the gutter, wholly dismantled the chariot, had at them with ferocious scimitars and left them for dead. And indeed, Ned and Ned were dead. Ned was carted off by a passing stretcher patrol, but panted his last breath an hour later, by which time the ruffians had scampered away, heading for the mountains. They stopped by the Kaolin quarry to eat their packed lunches, and then, as night came down, they strode up the mountainside, these ruffians, their gazes fixed on the sky above, to look at the numberless stars, to view the boundless firmament. And um, that's the end of Hooting Yard on the Air for this week. Two stories there. What will I have for you next week? Well, one thing I know for sure will be a very interesting list of international cyclists' nicknames. Well, you just have to wait a week for that. I um, hope you've enjoyed the show. Bye-bye. <laughs>